Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. On uh, the election of uh, Pope Francis, I see that most of you have your dessert, which is the important part of the meal, so uh, you'll be ready to think uh, and talk hard on this. Um, I want to tell you about next week before we uh, start advising Erin on uh, what she missed. Um, next week, uh, Kim Seaver uh, is speaking on citizen journalism, uncredited, uncertified, illegitimate, and popular. And um, uh, Kim uh, operates uh, something called the Lethbridge News and uh, is on the inside in terms of citizen journalism. So we're going to take a peek into the future and uh, how news is done these days. Um, one more thing. Um, uh, you know that probably that uh, one of the friends of the council, uh, Lori Walker, passed away recently. There is a card on the table as you came in that invites you to, we invite you to sign and uh, and uh, acknowledge uh, our respect to the rest of the family uh, okay Aaron's back I ask you to uh, go to the mic over there uh, name yourself be brief and uh, we'll have some fun with this uh, another member of our this Bev Mendelatherstone another member of, of our group uh, has passed away Shirley Debeau and she passed away on the 25th of April and, um, sorry, March, I'm ahead of myself. And there will be a card outside to sign as well. And thanks, Erin, for your presentation. My name is Knut Peterson. Um, thanks for your presentation. Uh, I'm going to make a suggestion to you. Uh, if this happened, if this was 1st of April, would you have said that the uh, Pope Francis might uh, ordain women for uh, the priesthood and uh, <laughs> let uh, the priest marry? You know, if you think about the last 40, 50 years, how the popes have actually surprised us. I mean, John the Twenty-Third, for instance, was I, not a particularly young man. He was known as a pastor, but not as a great intellect or, or diplomat. Nobody had great expectations of him, other than he was going to be sort of a kindly father figure. And he calls Vatican II and just causes a huge change in the church. Uh, nobody expected John Paul II to become such a significant figure internationally. He did. I, my own sense is that the popes can surprise us. Um, there was a lot of speculation about the gull that kept landing on the, the <laughs> chimney, that this was an appropriate figure for the Holy Spirit coming. You know, I, I read one lovely analysis of the election. It said... You know, we, we go in it as sort of cynical election watchers, and we analyze it like we analyze Justin Trudeau becoming leader of the Liberals, and they said, you know, the Holy Spirit might actually have something to do with this. Um, 
you never know. You never know what this that this pope might do. Uh, I would think that ordaining married men would become more likely the pattern before ordaining women. Uh, I'm not holding out hope that I can transfer, even even though apparently I'm self-loathing Anglican. Hi, I'm Lorna Brown, and I think it's a lot, the talk was the best pricey of the last 30 years that I've heard. And I would like to uh, ask you, do you think that our new pope, or the new pope, ha- being a Jesuit, will make will affect it in any way, will have any major effects on the church. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to admit something. I love the Jesuits. I love the Jesuits. Probably the most significant church in Winnipeg, which is the Holy Land, which is where I grew up, was St. Ignatius. I Probably one of the greatest influences on me as a priest is the Jesuit pastor of St. Ignatius. I'm still in contact with him. He's the novice director for the Jesuits in English Canada. Um, I have great hopes that the fact that Francis is a Jesuit means great things. Because the Jesuits have uh, a long tradition intellectually. They have a long tradition also of advocacy for the poor and for the marginalized Uh, They've shown incredible courage in many places, and I think that to be Pope, you have to have great courage. Um, They've shown themselves to be really um, superstars, I mean, in their own rights. Okay, now, having said this, I'm well aware that if there were Franciscans or Dominicans in the room, I'd be in big trouble. Uh, (laughs) Religious orders are signified by the letters after... So uh, if you are an OP, you're an order of preacher, you're Dominican. If you're um, OFM, you're order of friars minor, you're Franciscan. And if you're SJ, you're Society of Jesus, you're a Jesuit. So there's this joke, the Dominican and the, and the Jesuit uh, and the Franciscan are fighting over which order is the best. So they go and they pray to God for an answer and this paper floats down. You are all equal in my sight, children, signed God SJ. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. My name is Joseph Natuck. A very succinct presentation of the history. I'm part of that history, by the way, just in case you didn't know it. You can tell by my looks. I, I guess my, uh, and I really appreciate your observations about, uh, you know, quite frankly, I, I don't think too many Younger people really understand, you know, all these symbols and these different uh, Jesuits versus whatever. I think that's one of the issues, and I think that's something that whomever has to deal with it should be dealt with if we have to deal with that. I really think it should be, one, you know, it shouldn't make any difference in my opinion. But having said that, I, I'm I'm kind of wondering what, uh, you know, where the, the Pope Francis comes from, uh, whether... Forty plus percent are Catholics from his, uh, you know, from his where he comes from. What about the, uh, you know, some people in North America? And I, and I guess what I see happening in, in, in North America is we're losing a lot of Catholics. And I just wonder what influence that's going to have because, based on some of the comments I've heard, it's not a very positive thing. I think it would have been perhaps maybe better from the uh, you know developing, not the, the developed countries. Maybe we should have somebody that maybe totally understands what's happening out here. 
Thank you. Um, a couple of things. Argentina, well, much of Latin America, but Argentina especially, has experienced some of the same kinds of forces of secularization. Uh, rising numbers of people in Latin America are identifying themselves as none. So it's not like Francis is unaware of the realities of a secular, modernizing world. So it's not that I think he won't understand Europe and he's not going to understand North America. Having said that, I also think it is hard for us to appreciate the fact that we are in fact the minority of the world's population. That if you are a North American Roman Catholic, you are distinctly a minority among the world's Roman Catholics. Two-thirds of the world's Roman Catholics live in the Southern Hemisphere. And yet, the majority of the hierarchy of the church, the cardinals, uh, the bishops, are Northern Hemisphere. That's got to change. Uh, I suspect that in the next election, or the one after, that we will see an African Pope again. I mean, the early church had African popes, but I mean, it's been an awful long time. Um, I think that that change has already happened. It's going to continue to happen. And as hard as it is for us to sometimes realize this, our concerns are the concerns of the minority, not the majority. Um, it's hard... It's hard to realize when we're concerned about, you know, the ordination of women to realize that most of the people in the Catholic Church are worried about clean water and feeding their children. And so a pope that speaks about poverty and speaks about globalization and the impact of the poor who criticizes the IMF and criticizes industrial northern countries for their exploitation of the third world has huge appeal to people who can't feed their kids. So as much as, you know, I'd love to see a Pope who spoke out on all sorts of social issues that are near and dear to my heart, I'm not worried about feeding children. Well, no, that's not true. I worry about feeding university and college students all the time, but yeah. it is a little different. Uh, I can turn on a tap, I have clean water. So I think we have to keep that in mind. Hi, Aaron. You know, I'm Henning Mundel. Um, a little bit about Vatican II. Um, you just briefly made mention, and you made a potentially cop-out, but I don't think I want to let you just get off the hook quite that easily. Um, when in the mid-60s it happened, I happened to be a grad student in uh, California, and uh, it was exciting to see that in the Catholic Church, coming from Lutheran background, suddenly the vernacular was being introduced. Going back to my home church in Oliver, my parents and I would attend a wedding or a, or a baptism or a marriage in a, in a Catholic church, and we could lustily sing along the hymns, which most of the congregants weren't really that used to yet. <laughs> anyway, that's become well-established, the vernacular. But not being a Catholic, I haven't followed very closely what's been happening now with uh, Pope Francis, but... One can't help but read and see and hear things here and there over the last few weeks. And one of the concerns that I have picked up on is that with him as Pope, some of the advances of Vatican II might be go retro. That bus already left the 
terminal. So that won't ha- that is not no, the reality. No, it's already started. Huh? It's already started. Yeah. It's not that. Francis oh no, no, but that that it won't be reversed with him. Sorry, I I, I misspoke myself. Okay. Yeah, right, right. Uh, no, I, Benedict particularly was concerned about some of the things that had happened after Vatican II. I mean, he was he was perceived to be one of the arch conservatives in that. He wasn't actually that conservative. Um, Again, I can't believe I'm saying this, but you know, I've just spent a lot of time reading about the Society of Pius X, St. Pius X, and trust me, compared to them, Ratzinger was a flaming liberal. Um, but, Not I mean, Ratzinger, it was under Ratzinger's watch that some of the things got reintroduced, like the, the responses in the Mass. You know, you go to the Mass now, and if you haven't been in the last few years, you really get confused. Because and then the reintroducing of kneeling and things like that, and Benedict reintroduced things like giving communion on the tongue instead of into the hand when you received from him. I mean, he did things like that. I think that's going to continue, and in part, it's what John Allen calls the politics of identity. It's how do you assert who you are without sort of the distinctive. And he didn't want to go back on things like Latin. He, he wanted to keep the vernacular, but then, so what is distinctive about who you are? If your worship just looks like everybody else's, sounds like everybody else's, so you try and find ways to reestablish some of the marks. So this was the pressure on the American nuns to start wearing habits again, and the rest, which are seen as very conservative, you know, retrograde acts. But if you study sociology, you recognize what they're trying to do. They're trying to create distinctive identity again. And that's important if you want to hold people in a group. It's important for people to feel that being part of the group makes you different than being outside the group. So I understand why they're doing it. I mean, wouldn't be my thing. Um, but, I mean, I guess for Anglicans, a lot of that's no biggie anyway, because we flip back and forth between the BCP and the BAS without <coughs> dropping a hat. So, like, I, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers some of my Catholic friends, actually, who really don't like it. So, Douglas Mitchell, uh, given uh, your role at the present time in the city as ecumenical chaplain, I would like you to... Uh, Give us your thoughts on whether the Catholic Church, how it's going to deal with the other Christian faiths, and perhaps on a broader scale, other faiths, uh, but particularly on the ecumenical front, uh, it's tragic that the Christian Church has split up into so many divisions, and I wonder if you see any hope that, particularly of his, uh, because of his concern for poverty and social justice, whether the new Pope may make any progress in bringing us together? Uh, I guess there's two questions. One is locally and one's at the level of the papacy. And I, you know, locally, um, I work for the Presbyterian Lutheran, Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, the United Church, the the Anglican Church. So in that sense, I'm ecumenical, but there are also lots of other churches um, who we cooperate with, work together with, but aren't uh, together with in the chaplaincy. Um, I think Francis has a very good reputation for working with the Jewish community in Argentina. The patriarch for the Orthodox Church will be attending, or attended rather, his installation, his, his consecration, 
First time that's happened since schism. Reps have come for previous, but this was the first time the actual head of the church came. He's uh, already made gestures to other churches. I, I think he actually appears to be quite an ecumenical guy. Um, and that's, that's already been happening. That's been happening for 50 years. The new chaplaincy at Medicine Hat College is, has our four denominations plus the Roman Catholics. Uh, Roman Catholic Church in many places has been working with others, um, has had to and has willingly done so. Not everybody, but enough that I think that that's already become an established pattern. I don't think you could turn back the clock on that. Not easily, anyway. The truth is, too much ecumenical stuff happens at the grassroots level. So, I mean, in one sense, it wouldn't really matter if the Pope said, you know, all the rest of the churches aren't real churches. Uh, the truth is that I go to funerals, and I see people from other churches helping with the teas afterwards, and I know that that's real ecumenism. You know, when we do things on campus for students, everybody's in there. That's real ecumenism, and I don't really care what you say at the top level. You can't stop that. When people like their neighbors, they like their neighbors. And the Pope can't change it. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much, Aaron, for being with us today. I think uh, I can speak for the uh, group here today that, to say that we've been blessed by your presence today. Um, uh, a fascinating delivery. Um, uh, deviating a bit from the philosophical or the ecclesiastical or the philosophical, uh, we are living in a capitalist world where money and power speak very, very loudly. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church is the richest and most powerful of, of the Christian churches on this earth. And when it comes down to money, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a comedian recently who uh, uh, on this comedy show said, you know, I was walk, walk, walking down the street and this beggar hand, put out his hand and said, have you got any change? And he says, yeah, I've got change, but it's mine. Um, with that attitude and knowing that uh, the church has amassed such great power and, and wealth uh, over the years, are those people who have been so successful in doing that, are they going to be easy to be dealt with by Pope Francis? Do you think that he has a chance against them? Oh, that's an interesting question. That's not where I thought you were going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because certainly like the Legion of Christ um, accumulated massive holdings. Uh, schools, hospitals, all sorts of institutions. They funneled a lot of money into uh, the Vatican when when John Paul had a project they could provide it. I mean there's all sorts of speculation that basically when he was in his 20s that's how the founder the founder got recognized and authorized and went off to Spain under Franco's sponsorship to be trained. There's all sorts of speculation that that happened because he slipped a lot of money to the right person in Rome who expedited it all. Um, one of the arguments that has been made historically against the Jesuits is that they had too much power and money. The head of the Jesuits was often called the Black Pope because he wore black robes instead of white. 
uh, and they were actually suppressed for a while for just being a little too uh, powerful, a little too uppity. Told you, I love the Jesuits. Uh, the the speculation is that the Vatican is not as financially well off as people assume, that its financial house is in a bit of disarray, that it's been influenced by the same economic downturn as everybody else in Europe. One of the last things he did before his retirement was appoint a new director. Uh, Ratzinger appointed a new director of the Vatican Bank, uh, a German. Um, because the German economy is the only one that's doing well. Apparently, that's why they couldn't elect another German pope, because the Italians are too resentful of that. <laughs> it's made a great deal of in the press, that the Italian economy is collapsing while the German is thriving. But um, that's a very interesting question. I, I suspect that the pope's hands are more tied financially than people realize. Um, just even the fact that many, in many places, Catholic institutions have been taken over by the state because they couldn't pay. I mean, you see this in Lethbridge, right, with St. Mike's Hospital and, and the rest. That uh, in Winnipeg, all the hospitals that were started by the Grey Nuns, taken over by, by the government, universities the same because the church can't sustain them financially anymore. So. Ed, <coughs> Ed Bardock. Uh, first of all, I would like on behalf uh, of being a member of this for so many years to thank Country Kitchens. It doesn't matter whether 35 people show up or 100 people show up. I don't know how they can serve such excellent meals, and I'd like to thank them for that. Aaron, in keeping with your mischievous title... Uh, where is the Catholic Church going? You listed ten items that the, an author had listed the Pope Francis would have to face. Put you on the spot. Which two, or even one, but which two do you think he can will be forced to take on immediately and actually achieve something? <laughs> Can I have ten? Uh, I think he's going to have to do something. I, well, have to do something. What? What? I think the the issue of the economic and environmental devastation by that is being uh, experienced through much of the world because of changing global economy has to be addressed. I mean, I don't think that's just that Francis has to address it. We're poisoning ourselves. We're seeing all the consequences of global warming around the world right now. Australia is burning up. The prairies are like living under a mountain of snow. I mean, all of this bizarre weather we're experiencing, tornadoes, hurricanes, the rest. I think like any leader, he's going to have to address those kinds of issues. The, the increasing gap between the rich and the poor and all of the subsequent social and political instability that that creates, the violence that that creates is going to have to be addressed. And as a world leader, I mean, this is the, the difference between being the Pope and being the head of other churches is you're actually the head of a state. 
not really tiny state, but nonetheless a state. And you you have diplomats, and you know you're you're part of of um, of an intergovernmental relationship that most churches aren't. He's going to have to address those issues in the same way that the government of Canada is going to have to address those issues, that the United States and and the rest are going to have to address these issues because they're potentially uh, grave. I mean, the, the other issues are certainly there. The changing population of Europe, the aging uh, of the population coupled with significant immigration, particularly the, the growth of the Islamic community, means he's going to have to deal with those issues because there's all sorts of implications for the church. Uh, the rise of the Pentecostal church in the south, in the southern hemisphere, huge issue. Because the Pentecostal churches are responding, I mean, are able to respond to local circumstances the way the Catholic church can't. So in a sense, he's got the problem of being the Titanic. You know, I mean, the problem with the Titanic wasn't just that they were going too fast, it's that once they saw the iceberg, they couldn't get turned around because they were so big. They were, and I mean, in a sense, he's got that problem, whereas the Pentecostals are, you know, they're the smaller boats that can see and respond quickly. So, like, I don't envy him the task. I don't know why anybody would want that job. And he even gave up, like, the coolest aspects of it, the limo and the Prada shoes. Like, seriously. Oh, and that really cool apartment. I mean, he gave that all up, too. I mean, my goodness. Um, he's got a horrible job trying to respond to those. But, I, I mean, I think he has to respond to the same issues that we're all going to have to respond to, or we're dead. Like, not in the next 10 years, maybe, but soon. Um, Austin Fennell. Thanks, Aaron. Well done. Um, and maybe people will understand that a chaplain does more than collect food hampers. Uh, and what you did is very interesting and very interesting approach that you took today, uh, which comes out of a certain kind of framework to be a critique. Now, Carl Rayner was interviewed just around the time in which this was all taking place. And his criticism was that the papacy today is still controlled by a medieval model. I didn't understand that. But does it mean that there's a constraint there that's going to limit him in ways that haven't yet been faced? I just didn't understand that. I, I'm going to recommend John Favis's uh, book, The Vatican Diaries, because he said, you know, people think of the papacy in a particular way. They think of it as really um, rigorous hierarchy where there's lots of control and the rest. He said the truth is, it's more like uh, an Italian medieval village. And one group doesn't talk to the other group. And he says, as a reporter, it's great because you just walk down the hall and people will tell you stuff because they're mad at the cardinal down the hall or because they don't even know what's going on down the hall. So they think, oh, I better respond to something. So they'll say something. It turns out it's completely wrong. So then the Vatican's backtracking and trying to say, no, no, that cardinal wasn't speaking for us when he said that. Really, it's without actually saying he was wrong. You know, they're caught up in, he said, this hodgepodge of relationships is actually not that well organized, where it's not clear who's responsible for what or who's accountable to what or to who. Uh, and in that sense, medieval, you know, you think about the difference in terms of um, technology. You know, when you go into the, the new hospitals and they've got the fancy beds and all the buttons and, and all the rest. Uh, the Vatican, in a sense, is still trying to function like the country doctor uh, without all the technology, except that the technology sometimes is shoved in, too. I mean, you just get this weird sort of 
sense of hodgepodge of a little bit of this and a little bit of that and um, old-fashioned structures, a whole protocol around that. So yes, I think uh, that makes life difficult. It's not really clear often who's responsible for what or who's looking after what. Um, even, okay, I loved the first chapter is about the ringing of the bells you know, they had a hard time seeing the smoke, like telling what color, so they decided to back it up with the ringing of the bells. The problem is that they've got all this technology to block cell phones so that the cardinals can't be telling their best friend what's happening in the voting. Well, it meant that the porter who was responsible for ringing the bells couldn't use his cell phone, so he's up there. They have an old-fashioned landline, and it rings. And he answers it, and he says, the Pope, they've elected a Pope, ring the bells. And he said, well, who is this? And he said, it's one of the Swiss guards who's outside the door. And somebody thought, oh, we were supposed to ring the bells. Open the door and said, tell him to ring the bells. So he's saying, ring the bells? He's going, well, I don't know who you are. What if I'm wrong? So then he phones some other cardinal somewhere or some bishop somewhere in the Vatican. He's going, so should I ring the bells? Shouldn't I? He goes, I don't know. Well, don't yet until I know for sure. So they're running around trying to find somebody to confirm that the Pope's being elected so that they can phone on the landline and he can ring the bells. And of course, they also hadn't thought about the problem that the bells ring every hour on the hour. And people couldn't distinguish between that and the one that meant that, yes, the smoke was white. Anyway, it was just, it's hilarious to read this. What was the name of the Italian that was being considered for Pope? Scola. So he would have been Pepsi Cola? Lisa, can you give me a mic? On on uh, on that very academic note, we'll uh, we'll close. But I want you to know before you uh, say thanks that we have got all this wisdom from someone not in red shoes or brown shoes, but in kind of scruffy gray shoes. So let's thank Aaron. <laughs>